My guest today is Peter Ackman. Peter is a long, long time practitioner of acupuncture and East Asian medicine. He's written a number of books. It's a not small list, so I'm going to send you over to the show notes for information about those. You'll want to check those out. Peter has a background not only in Worsleyan Five Element Acupuncture, but also a background in Korean medicine and some various aspects of Korean medicine. In fact, he writes quite a bit about this in some of his books. It's the subject of today's conversation, this Korean medicine thing. Peter, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you. You know, it's it's funny. I've got into Chinese medicine because I got interested in acupuncture. And, and of course, we hear about Korean medicine. We hear about Japanese medicine. We often think of of this stuff as Chinese medicine. But the Koreans seem to have their own viewpoint on this stuff. You just don't hear much about Korean medicine. And, and it seems like the people who know about it, at least in my short amount of study with it, haven't had a whole lot to write about it. So it's it's like it's almost difficult to come by. And so I'm curious to know how you found your way into this stream of our East Asian medicine. Well, that's actually an easy question to answer as my initial involvement with acupuncture was with Korean teachers, not with Chinese teachers. Way back in the day in the early 1970s, after I finished my orthodox medical training, I had been in school for so many years getting an MD and a PhD that I just needed a break. And during that time, I answered an ad in uh, a want ad basically in the San Francisco Chronicle for a licensed physician to work in an acupuncture clinic in Los Angeles. And since a good friend of mine who had been a co-intern with me lived in Los Angeles, I said, well, I'll go down there and check it out, knowing nothing about acupuncture. I did the interview and was immediately accepted into the program, which was essentially a two-week training program in Korean acupuncture. The teachers spoke only Korean. There was an interpreter. The crazy idea behind this was that the Korean practitioners would be able to, when it came time to uh, go to clinic, look through a window at patients, but the Western licensed doctor, meaning me, would go in and actually examine the patients and then come back out and discuss my findings through an interpreter with the Korean acupuncturist. And he would draw a stick figure of a human being and put dots where the acupuncture needles should go after having had my two-week uh, introductory training of where the acupuncture meridians were and the ideology, etc. Well, of course, I thought this was totally ridiculous, but it was paying my bills. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's a lark. I'll, I'll try it out and see what happens. And I was totally blown away by the fact that patients started getting better from things that Western medicine really had no good answers for, like migraine headaches and arthritis. So right from that very, very brief introduction, I was hooked and decided I had to learn more about acupuncture. At that time, it was not a question of internal medicine and herbal uh, strategies. It was purely acupuncture. And I just read everything that was available in English back in the early, you know, 1974. Yeah. So you read, you read both books, right? I read both books. <laughs> and uh, the more I read, the more interested I became. I, I think partly because I had found Western medicine, my primary training, as uh, kind of cold and sterile. And even though Korean acupuncture wasn't always rigorous and didn't strike me as scientific, it had that aspect of being human and the dimension of being human, being artistic, appreciating art, and adding the whole human experience of emotions and cognition to evaluating things just struck me as perfectly natural and 
and clearly what was missing in Western medicine. So I just began staying with the Korean teachers. I, I worked for this uh, clinic that was set up uh, for the Korean uh, practitioners to basically run. Did that for uh, several years. And at that time, I, I ran into other practitioners of acupuncture who basically came from the Worsley tradition. To summarize, basically, my intro to acupuncture was Korean. And it was only later that the Chinese component, through Worsley's interpretation of it, even entered my consciousness. But I ended up going to study with Worsley in England for many years. I've continued both of those interests ever since. I've had numerous Korean teachers and numerous Western-speaking teachers of acupuncture of all varieties, Korean uh, uh, people who spoke English that taught Korean acupuncture, people who spoke English taught Chinese acupuncture, Japanese acupuncture. And eventually, I also realized that there was still something missing in my education, that I felt like there was a hole. And the natural place that I gravitated towards was Ayurvedic medicine. I, I was interested in trying to uh, make sense of pulse diagnosis, which I think is really the essential diagnostic maneuver in Chinese medicine, since I hadn't been able to master it with the various other national approaches. I decided to study Ayurvedic pulse diagnosis, and that turned out to be the key for me that made everything fit together in a kind of seamless unity. You study conventional medicine, you got an MD, you got a PhD, and you decide that to relax, you're going to go take this acupuncture course, or you you saw this thing in the paper? Was it a course? Was it a job? I'm, I'm a little confused at what you went down to and did for that two weeks. The initial uh, ad was for an interview for a job, but the actual two-week course was a job. That was my training in order to go into the clinic and actually be a practitioner. And your job was to be the white guy with the coat who's an MD, who's putting the needles in, and you've got your uh, Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, so to speak, telling you where to do it. That's a great description. Yeah, it's right on the money. <laughs> oh, man, that is that is hilarious. That's yeah. great. And it shouldn't work, right? It's crazy, but uh, but it did. It did. And it, and it worked, and you went, holy smokes, look at this. Exactly. With that little training, that little experience, you were noticing things. Y yes, not even just noticing occasional things. I would say the bulk of the people I treated got better. Is there a particular style to the acupuncture that they were doing? Probably that style of practice is not very different from what the uh, average Chinese practitioner would be doing with TCM. One of, the, uh, one of the observations I have is that we tend to think each ethnic or uh, national grouping is homogeneous, but actually it's not true. You know, I'm sure you're aware, as many of your listeners are, that Chinese medicine or Chinese acupuncture is composed of lots of disparate approaches for instance, people that use the uh, Dong system uh, that Richard Tan taught are as uh, different from what Worsley teaches as Chinese acupuncture as both of them are from TCM. And yet they're all basically Chinese styles of acupuncture. The same thing is true in Korea. There are um, many different styles of Korean acupuncture. The one that I was taught initially to use in clinic is, as I said, I think closest to what TCM looks like to me these days. It's kind of a general approach of using points that are known to influence the uh, symptomatology and presentation of the patient. Obviously, in that kind of situation, I couldn't be very helpful in terms of uh, telling the Korean advisors what the pulses were like but I could certainly show them uh, where the patients were complaining about symptoms and whether pressure made it better or worse, 
whether temperature made it better or worse. So, you know, it's a very simplistic application of the eight principles. Well, those eight principles will take us a long way, really. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. They really will. Yeah. Again, one of my pet projects in life is, and I think this is, uh, I'm actually in the process of writing another book at the moment. And part of that is looking at where historically the idea came into acupuncture, specifically that there is such a thing as a person's constitution that is different than their present condition. So the eight principles approach of TCM, uh, essentially, in my opinion, is dealing with the present condition that uh, patients uh, bring to us, whereas the Worsley style and my Korean constitutional teachings have come from the idea that prior to developing a condition, we all start out from different places in who we actually are, and that that is important to recognize in order to get the most appropriate treatment, even for the same condition that different people might have. So if you have a migraine headache and I have a migraine headache with exactly the same symptoms, we might still need different treatments. Yeah, it's one of the real beauties and annoyances of the medicine we practice. You know, it's it's so cool in a way and it's so exciting to be able to understand in a very specific and granular way why this migraine that appears to be like that migraine are actually different. That's, I mean, there's something really delightful about that. Of course, in practice, it can make you tear your hair out. The constitution thing I think is so interesting. It's one of the things I wanted to get into with you today. We're going to get into that in just a second. You know, I've done some work over the years with Dr. Huang Huang in, uh, in China, who he looks a lot at constitution as well. He'll often, I mean, he doesn't just often, he does. He sort of homes it to the actions of a certain herb. So you got your Guajir type people, you got your Chaihu type people. And he often also will talk about how you can have a set of presenting symptoms or conditions. Sometimes that's not within the constitutional predilection of somebody. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And it's useful information to know and, and helpful to be able to consider that stuff. Yeah, I remember we did even talk about uh, Huang Wang's work. I believe you translated something for him, didn't you? Uh, yeah, the, the 10 key formula family. Yes. Yes. And I did look that over, but I have to make sure your listeners understand I am, I do not consider myself a competent herbalist. I've studied it and, you know, read about it for many decades, but it's not, it's not something that I feel I have a personal gift for, uh, while acupuncture is. So, um, I'm always eager to read material about herbal theories and uh, practices, including your mentioning of Huang Huang's constitutional thinking. But um, I, I wouldn't rely on my opinion of uh, how that compares to the acupuncture concept of constitution, since I'm not really a competent herbalist. Right. Well, that, that doesn't matter so much in today's conversation, because Number one, I want to get into the acupuncture aspect, and I'm especially interested in the Korean constitution. And then this thing that you mentioned, especially this thing that you mentioned with the inquiry in your new book, which is when do you focus on constitution? When do you focus on presentation? How does one inform the other? That I think is such a juicy question, whether we're doing acupuncture, whether we're doing herbal medicine or food therapy for that matter. Tell us about the Korean constitutions. It's, it certainly is different than the Worsley and five phase. Yes. Yes. The Worsley five phase, obviously from the name of uh, the system we just used, uh, is a system of five parts. Wood, fire, earth, metal, water, which Worsley coined the terminology of causative factor as reflecting a person's central focus of energetics. He himself never committed to whether it was something that we inherited or something we acquired very early in life. Uh, most of his students, myself included, have concluded that it is actually an inherited situation. So that's the five element perspective on constitution. The Korean 
perspective first came out in 1965, uh, and it was enunciated by one of my most important teachers, Quan Dewan, who's now 97 years old, and he just retired last year in, in uh, 2017 from practice. So he had, from 1965 through last year, continuous, very busy practice of what he introduced in 1965, which he called at that time Korean constitutional acupuncture. This was his own novel theory that he had discovered there was a certain mechanism of taking the pulses quite different than the traditional Chinese pulses at Sun Guan and Chu. He took them much more proximally up the arm and that there were exactly eight different patterns of those pulses that individuals displayed and that in addition to the fact that there were these eight patterns, any given person would show the same pattern at any time in their life, whether they were healthy, whether they were ill, whether they were young, whether they were old, whether it was in the morning or in the evening. I think the idea of constitutions came to him from the discovery that there was something in people that didn't change with circumstance. And uh, as you pointed out, there's a difference between the Korean approach and Worsley's approach in that eight and five are quite different ways of parsing constitutional typology. For many years, that presented me, uh, who had studied both systems with uh, many headaches, because eight and five just don't harmonize with each other. How do you hang those two together? Exactly. And uh, really, that's what my book, The Complete Acupuncturist, pre first presented as uh, sharing with my colleagues my understanding of how to resolve the differences between the, what I call lenses of eight and five types. And that actually, if you look deeply enough, there are ways of accommodating both of them in the same way that we can accommodate any uh, thinking we have based on using different lenses to look at, you know, it's like the blind men and the elephant that feel different parts. It's not like those parts are not connected to the elephant. They're all parts of the elephant and they're all true. So they can be present simultaneously, yet they give you different information about the animal you're dealing with. Can you give us an example? Sure. The eight constitutions that Dr. Guan presented were based originally on a development from the I Ching. So if you remember, the I Ching starts with dividing the, the Tao into a yin and a yang component. And each of those are infinitely subdivisible. So there's yin within yang and yang within yin, but it's not limited to just one step further. We can keep going as far as we want so that we can stop at the stage of eight, which was the place that Dr. Guan had gotten to. Now, he had gotten there through the intermediary step of the work of uh, a, doc a Korean doctor, Lee Jema, who was uh, working in the late 1800s and developed actually a, a totally herbal system of medicine, which he called Sasang constitutional medicine. Sasang is the Korean way of pronouncing the characters that in Chinese we would call Sushiang, the uh, four images from the I Ching. Those eight types are an expansion of the Sushiang into either a yin or a yang, or I might say a zang or a fu manifestation of the four basic types from Korean Sasang medicine. An example might be for Korean constitutional acupuncture, someone might have the diagnosis of liver excess constitution. 
Now, one of the difficulties is that Dr. Guan used very esoteric terminology, which he kept changing as he developed his theories. So he ended up calling that constitution hepatotonia or hepatonia. I can never remember exactly which English uh, romanization he used, but essentially it meant liver excess. And the idea behind that was that all the problems that this person developed would start from uh, their tendency for their liver to become not just strong, which was their nature, but to become excessive when under stress that they couldn't compensate for. So their constitution was liver excess, but their condition might be that they had a problem with their large intestine meridian, which would be possibly manifesting problems along the pathway of the large intestine meridian. And uh, he called those auxiliary uh, functions. So the large intestine is what's called the vitalization formula in the liver excess constitution. So that people would have things like numbness along the large intestine pathway, or potentially actually numbness anywhere in the body might be a, a problem with vitalization of that person's energy and would be treated simultaneously with dispersing the liver and tonifying the large intestine. So there's a very simple get rid of the excess, tonify the deficiency. Exactly. Uh, but it's a little bit of a different perspective than Worsley, who had pretty much encouraged his students and taught his students to focus simply on treating the constitutional part of that uh, uh, situation. So if somebody had a, an excessive liver constitution and they, he thought they were a wood constitution, he would primarily be treating the liver and gallbladder without respect to treating the large intestine, even if that was what was responsible for the presenting condition. The idea here being take care of the root, the branch will take care of itself? Exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. That's a very good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Whereas Dr. Guan, he'd look at it and go, all right, there's this constitutional predilection. There's this other thing that is manifesting as the problem let's see what that relationship is like and treat both of them. Yes, it's a, a, a very good way of putting it because even the classical texts pointed out that, uh, and here I'm specifically referring to the Nanjing, that you can have a situation where somebody has an illness that you treat and their pulses are perfectly normal Everything feels like uh, it's working well, and possibly even the symptoms go away, and then the patient dies. And the passage in the Nanjing is uh, introduced by the Yellow Emperor asking, well, how's that possible? That's crazy. You know, if, if the pulses are good, well, why is the patient dying? And uh, the answer is that it's like a tree with roots, that if you cut the roots off and the roots die, that doesn't mean that the branches and leaves and flowers are immediately going to um, die. In fact, you know, we traditionally do this all the time. We cut off uh, flowers and put them in a vase and they live for quite a while and we admire their beauty, but they don't continue. They're not fully alive entities anymore. And because they're cut off from their roots, they will eventually die much sooner than they would have in nature. So the idea here is that it's important to make sure that the roots are healthy. If they are, then even if the branches die and the leaves are gone, the living organism still has the potential to recover. So first focus on the root and then to make the process of healing quicker and more complete, add treatment for the uh, manifestations or conditions that are presently showing. I mean, that just sounds fundamental when you put it that way. 
Yeah, yeah, but it's interesting that, you know, that idea did not really enter until the Nanjing. You know, these terms like the Yuan Qi didn't even appear in the Neijing or the Shanghan one. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Ann Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Yeah, well, you know, some of these terms, Yuan Qi, Zheng Qi, right? Ming Man. I mean, I mean, there's a number of them. Three treasures, Jing Qi Shan, right? There's a good one, Jing Qi Shan. There's so many terms, and, you know, we're exposed to them. Yeah, I know going through school, I would like nodding, you know, I'd nod my head. Oh yes, those, those important things. I'm telling you, 20 years down the road, some of these basic things, I realize I have a very limited understanding of, and they're supposed to be fundamental to what we do. I don't think it's so easy sometimes to understand what these things are. They come out of a different place. They come out of a different time. They come out of a whole different way of observing the universe. Sure. And and I think to a degree, that's a little bit of a fault of our um, school system where uh, students aren't necessarily taught where things come from. They're kind of handed them as a uh, fait accompli. You know, this is what we believe to be true in, in uh, Chinese medicine. And if we don't understand where they were introduced in the history of Chinese medicine, then it's easy to get confused about what they actually mean because they didn't necessarily even mean the same thing at different epochs uh, in history. I want to come back to the constitutions for a moment, partly because I'm just so interested in constitution these days. And because with the Korean system, which I really I've only recently started to get a little experience with, I think, I think my first introduction to the Korean thoughts about constitution and some treatment and such was was reading your book, The Complete Acupuncturist. I, I, that's where some of the first stuff came from. Um, recently, I've been doing some work uh, in learning some acupuncture from uh, this cat named Toby Daly, who practices Sa'am acupuncture, which I want to ask you about a little later in this. That's a, that's a whole other way of looking at things. And so it seems to me that the Korean tradition while, yes, it, much of it is rooted in stuff that we'd already know, I mean, there are these significant differences, right? You say about the lens of eight versus the lens of five. So help me understand a bit how the Koreans got to basically four types when you're looking at constitution and how we might be able to start thinking about that in our practices. In the late 1800s, uh, this Dr. Lee Jama was an individual who himself was not in good health. He had uh, some problems that, uh, if I remember properly, included things like partial paralysis or weakness and problems with his digestive system. And he went to all the famous doctors of uh, his time, and nobody really was able to help him. And so he ended up, he was a Confucian scholar. And he ended up studying the medical classics and thinking deeply about what really inspired them, 
what their route was. And he came up with a totally new system based, as I said before, on the I Ching division rather than on the five element interpretation of energetics. And his idea was that essentially there were four, these four images, four types, uh, which uh, revolved around four of the Tsang organs. One pair is the kidney and spleen, and the other pair is the lung and liver, which are natural opposites to each other. So his four types were uh, one where the liver was inherently from birth stronger than the lung. An opposite type was exactly the opposite, the lung stronger than the liver. And we could make the same uh, example uh, parallel with the kidney stronger than the spleen or the spleen stronger than the kidney. And those were the original four types that he treated exclusively with herbal medicine and food treatment. And lo and behold, what happened was that he was able to cure himself of this previously untreatable condition and uh, wrote a, a textbook, uh, or I should say a book anyway, called Life Preservation in uh, Oriental Medicine. I'm not very good at remembering the Korean pronunciation of the names of the books, but this this text that he wrote was very influential in shifting the thinking of Korean doctors it actually deletes many of the concepts in uh, Chinese medicine, such as coupled Biaoli meridians and the Zhang Fu couples that we're familiar with. It's not based on five element thinking at all. It's based on the I Ching, but is, is very, very, con well, the I Ching is a Confucian classic, and it's based on a very Confucian um, approach, which is that individuals' virtues and their inherent tendencies behaviorally were really what defined who they were and what kinds of health problems they would encounter. So his, his diagnostic methodology was something that he was not able really to teach any of his inheritors it was not based on the pulse. It wasn't based on uh, uh, color, sound, odor, and emotion. It was essentially a, a psychological diagnosis. And one of the stories I like to tell is uh, one of his more difficult cases he had was a uh, mature woman who had a uh, serious illness that nobody could help. And uh, this woman was brought to him for treatment you have to remember this very traditional uh, Korean society, which uh, essentially was Confucian in nature, where propriety uh, was a very high-valued aspect of how a doctor should behave. In order to diagnose her, he had to figure out what her psychology was. After the preliminary introductions, uh, he basically began a process of becoming more and more outrageous with her, which involved asking her sequentially to take off every layer of her clothing and watching what her reaction was to this. Eventually, of course, what happened when he got to more or less completely undressing her, uh, she just shrieked and freaked out. And in the manner in which she did that, he was able to glimpse what it was that she was actually feeling. What was the emotion that was at the root of how she self-identified? And by that, he then said, okay, forget everything that I did. I understand what's wrong with you and prescribed the proper herbs for that constitution. And she was cured. That's just like a, a little window into the very, very different way of thinking in what became Korean constitutional theory. Wow. That's, there's a certain kind of brilliance in that. I, I think about uh, like some of the master therapists that I've, I've read a bit about people like Milton Erickson, keen, just astute observers of human interaction who through a conversation or through 
him doing something and then watching the reaction of, of his patient learn something really critical about them. It sounds a little bit like that. And so by doing this, he would he would be able to figure out, oh, well, this is a liver excess and you treat it this way. Or, oh, this person freaked out in the uh, kidney deficiency way and then know to go at it from that angle. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's right on the money again. One thought that comes to me as we're chatting about this is that the central focus in this approach depends on the interaction between practitioner and patient. Uh, in this particular case, it's one in which the practitioner provokes a uh, unexpected reaction from the patient that helps them diagnose. There's an obverse side to that practitioner-patient relationship, which Ted Kapchuk uh, emphasizes, which is his idea of Tong Shen Ming, where there's something about what the practitioner gives to the patient in the interaction that is essential to the healing process. And it's not so much that he uses it to diagnose the patient, he uses it to actually begin the healing process even before either needles or herbs are prescribed. That's quite interesting. It's like the yin and the yang of the patient-practitioner interaction. Yes. On one hand, you can use it to diagnose, and on the other hand, you could also use it as treatment. I have not heard of this aspect is Tong Sheng Ming uh, from Ted Kaptrick. I know that, you know, of course I read The Web That Had No Weaver. It was the first book I ever read on Chinese medicine. I'm familiar to some degree with his current work on placebo, which is absolutely fascinating. And, and he talks about this a little bit in his work on placebo, that it, you know, we can look and see all kinds of things on fMRIs and all kinds of things in the blood and what's happening with neurotransmitters but there just might be this other thing that's going on as well. Yes, yes. Well, I recently spoke to Ted. You know, Ted, the material that I just mentioned about Tong Shen Ming, uh, Ted shared in uh, the Pacific Symposium talk that he gave just this uh, last year. So uh, that's where I glommed on to that uh, thinking from. But since I have corresponded with Ted, because I wanted to include some of that material in the, the book I'm working on, and basically what Ted said is that um, he had to make a choice in his professional career between what he was doing with placebo research and what his initial interest had been in Chinese medicine, and that he recognized that in terms of funding, that it would be much, much easier to get the NIH and its uh, subsidiary compartments to agree to fund placebo research than it would for to get them to fund uh, the kind of uh, Chinese medicine research he might be interested in. And so he's made a conscious choice to, at least for the time being, to stay with the placebo studies. I think he's doing a great job with them. Yeah, it, it's really interesting work, and it's fascinating hearing about really the mirror side you know, of what you were just talking about with the diagnostic method, the, the, the doctor using behavior and observation as, as a way of seeing what's going on for the patient. And it makes a huge amount of sense for me. I know that sometimes I'll be sitting talking with a patient and, and sometimes things just really feel different in the room. Or sometimes I'll say something or sometimes the patient will say something. And instantly the feeling in the room shifts, really as if there's been an acupuncture treatment. Sure. Sure. And, and actually, I, I've had the experience, uh, I think it's happening more lately than it did earlier in my career, of patients telling me that what impressed them the most and what they think ultimately helped them the most was the talking I did with them and suggestions I gave them about different ways they might think about looking at their situation in life rather than the actual acupuncture treatment they gave them. I find that that really is for me also equally interesting that when I come to a diagnosis with a patient, I want that diagnosis to reach all the way down to why did they begin to develop a health problem? 
what was it that happened to them that was too much for them to stay healthy with and to show them that they have now different ways of conceptualizing that experience than they might have had when they were younger and experienced it with fewer resources available. That truly is a a fascinating and rewarding uh, approach to being a therapist uh, in my experience. When you're having these kinds of conversations with patients, patients usually come in with a diagnosis and they and they think they're their diagnosis. But uh, thanks to East Asian medicine, there's all these other ways of thinking about both problems and resources. And, and because I think about those and because I, I literally feel like I'm talking to certain aspects of my patient that they're not able to talk to because they can't conceptualize it, like it wakes something up in them. There are more resources that I see in them than they're able to feel in themselves, but because I can kind of see it and express it, they can start to get it as well. Yep, yep. I think that's quite correct, quite correct. I was going to add that there's a very closely allied finding that I got from my Ayurvedic uh, teacher, which is that in Ayurvedic medicine, when you take uh, an individual's pulse, your consciousness actually is focused on what's happening at the etheric level in their pulse. You're, you know, you're feeling something that is just on the border of being a physical process and a non-physical process. And their shen, their awareness is drawn to the same, because your finger is on the pulse and is clearly the focus of attention, that's where their subconscious attention goes. And so just the act of feeling a patient's pulse is enough to begin the process of changing their thinking and of initiating a healing response, very similar to the idea that what you say to them can begin to initiate a healing response because you're bringing something from their subconscious level into their awareness. And once it's there, then they have the option of being able to work with it. This is really helpful. This this piece about when we bring our awareness to something that they're not aware of. We weren't aware of it either before, but it's our job to go looking and we bring some awareness. Oh, that kidney pulse is really stony feeling, right? Whatever it is. That also invites them to inquire a bit. And lately I've noticed that patients, I mean, they've been saying this for years, but lately I've been interacting with it differently where they'll say something like, wow, what did you put on those needles? Or they'll have a, 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 a real sense of, of stillness and they're like, I don't want to move or do anything. This might go away. But the truth is it can't go away. Because I didn't put anything in that wasn't in there. All the acupuncture does, as far as I'm concerned, is bring out latent or slumbering aspects of their of themselves. And it does it very, very well, but it sounds like you can do this as well by simply being attentive to a pulse that will start that same process. Yes. And, and I'm sure there are other ways. It doesn't have to be through the pulse. It can be through any way in which you are able to make genuine contact with some aspect of that person's energy. You know, my way is through the pulse, but I I certainly don't insist that that's the only way possible. And I think Ted's concept of of Tongshen Ming really is not in any sense restricted to pulse diagnosis. I don't think it's even discussed in, in the passages where Tongshen Ming is alluded to. It's really the fact that the practitioner is able to contact the patient at that level that the pa- as you as you just expressed that the patient hadn't been aware existed in them already, and that they were kind of suppressing at the moment, but didn't really need to. And if it could be brought into light then it was capable of changing. Yeah, and dramatically. And I would suspect, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
But if we're paying attention to constitution, however we're paying attention to constitution, whether they're going through the fit, you know, lens of eight or five or four or you know whatever we've got, if there's if there's something that makes sense and it holds together, then attending to somebody at that deeper level, it is easier to strike a deeper resonance. Yes, yes. I think that's true. And, and and the basic idea behind the Korean constitutional approach is that all of us have one organ system, that inherently is either their most active, which I'll call strong, strongly functional system, or their least active uh, or weakest, weakly functioning system, even when they're healthy but that that determines their vulnerabilities and also their gifts. So because they're the vulnerable place in them, when they're under stress, that's what's going to give way the first. Either if they start out being strong, they'll become excessive, or if they start out being weak, they'll become deficient. And if we can intervene on that level, then that will bring them back to themselves. And essentially, that's my concept of what health and illness are all about. Health is when you feel like yourself. Illness is when something has taken you away from yourself. And it's not uncommon, actually, in my experience for my patients to say, I don't feel like myself really, you know, these days, you know, this just is not normal for me. And a really good treatment for me is when the patient tells me without being uh, coached, when they just spontaneously say, God, you know, I feel like myself again. I haven't felt like this in years. This is who I am. That's when I know I'm right on the target. Oh, man, that is probably the best definition of health that I think I've ever heard. Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it just that just that just rings right through me. Yes, and so that's the basic idea behind my picture of con- of the difference between constitution and condition. That we all have a constitution, which is who we are, and the conditions we develop are the deviations away from who we are. And what we want to do is bring the energetics of that condition back to our constitutional energetics so that we feel like ourselves again. And when we do, that corresponds to our both physical and non-physical self's healing. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. You know, I wanted to get into Pulse, but I also know that we're coming close to winding this down. So I'd I'd like to invite you uh, to another conversation sometime in the near future where we can, where we can dig into the Pulse. Sure. Um, but before we, we sign off for today, I'm, I'm just curious to get your sense if you're familiar at all with the Sa'am acupuncture. I, I think I mentioned I'm starting to study it a bit myself. It's, it's dramatically changed how I look at things. I was wondering if you've had exposure to it or if you use it or if, if you have much to say about it. 
again, as I said before about nationalities being thought of as homogeneous, the same thing is is true on a micro scale with individuals named approaches. So Sa'am acupuncture is not the same methodology by everyone who claims to practice it. If you actually look back in the historical record, Sa'am was a uh, Korean Buddhist monk who developed this methodology um, in the 1500s, I believe. So, you know, quite a long time ago. And essentially what he came up with, I believe, was initially passed on by oral tradition. There are several books that have been discovered in the uh, contemporary world that claim to be writings based on his teachings, but, uh, you know, there's lots of dispute about that. So not everyone who says they practice Sa'am acupuncture is talking about the same thing. For many years, actually, from the very beginning of my own acupuncture training in the 1970s, I was exposed to the four-needle technique, which was the primary discovery or contribution of Sa'am. And essentially what it was, was in the first place, combining both the uh, creative and destructive cycles of the five elements into a single treatment so that he would pick four points to be treated to affect any given meridian. Um, Two of the points would have to do with the creative cycle relationship, and two of the points would have to do with the destructive uh, cycle relationship. And so for me, when people talk about Sa'am acupuncture, that is the bedrock of what I think Sa'am acupuncture really means. And I would say 90 plus percent of Sa'am acupuncture is simply the application of the four-needle technique. He did, uh, as far as I'm aware, also develop a, a, a different protocol. Not, so so the, the original four-needle technique that I described was in terms of tonification and sedation or dispersion of uh, meridians. He also developed a second four-needle technique in terms of heating and cooling meridians, so as to be able to deal with illnesses that were due to overly hot or overly cold conditions in the patients. Those two incarnations of the four-needle technique are what I consider and have always been trained in as Sa'am acupuncture. These days, there are uh, people who claim to be practicing Sa'am acupuncture, I think based more on uh, these uh, long buried texts that have been rediscovered supposedly in the in the contemporary world, and I'm still keeping that as a an area of uh, non judgment because I don't really know how reliable the historical record is of whether this has anything at all to do with Sa'am's teachings. You know, it's a, it's very easy for something that was written in 1600 to suddenly appear in 2016, and people claim that this is genuine. Um, it takes a lot for me to buy into that, and so while I am aware that you've been exposed to someone who says this is what Sa'am acupuncture is it looks very different from what I was trained, even as early as I said, the early 1970s, to the use of Sa'am techniques. And you can find this actually even in Felix Mann's early writings, uh, the the four-needle technique, and uh, Worsley incorporated it from Felix Mann. And it's uh, a bedrock principle of Korean constitutional acupuncture. Almost all of those treatments are using the four-needle technique. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what I've been exposed to. Right, and all all of that goes back to Sa'am. So if there's anything uh, more specific about Sa'am stuff that you would be interested in me 
mentioning. I'd be happy to, but uh, it's a technique that I use very, very frequently in my own practice. And, uh, you know, I don't think that there's only one way to practice acupuncture, so I don't always use that, but um, it's quite common in, in my practice. Well, clearly there's so many effective ways to use acupuncture. I am familiar, and I've been using that for needle tonification dispersion, which I've seen amazing things happen with it. It's it it very much has my attention at the moment. I this is the first I've heard of also a four needle technique that has to do with heating and cooling. Could you tell me a little bit more about that one? Yes, uh, essentially the heating and cooling four needle formula uh, uses either. Uh, for the song organs, the kidney and the heart meridians um, to deal with the heat side, the heart for the heat side and the kidney for the cold side, uh, or their corresponding complementary foo organs, the small intestine and urinary bladder uh, for uh, hot and cold conditions. So, uh, for instance, if you wanted to uh, treat someone who was uh, diagnosed as um, liver cold, then you would tonify the fire point of the heart and the fire point of the liver to bring more heat to the liver, and you would disperse the water point of the kidney and the water point of the liver to get rid of the cold. So that's basically the uh, template for which you could use that for any uh, of the tang or fu. So, for example, if we had, say, a, a cold and damp spleen, then you could bring more fire and heat into it by doing the fire point on the spleen channel? Yes, in connection with the fire point on the heart channel. In connection with the fire point on the heart channel. That's always a fun one to do. And then uh, disperse the water point on the kidney channel and disperse the water point of the spleen channel. Correct. Yes, you could do that. And that, that would be essentially dealing with the uh, cold nature in the kidney. Uh, that's a little different than uh, dealing with the damp nature. Uh, I'm sorry, of the spleen. That's a little different than dealing with the damp nature of the spleen or damp condition of the spleen. And the dampness could be seen as a result of being too cold but it also could be seen as a result of being either deficient or excess. So it's, that's a little bit more complex a, a situation than simply cold or hot. Mm -hmm. Could you also think about this in terms, since often we see damp and cold go together, instead of just working on heating it up, are there also ways you could look at it and go, you know what? It's cool, but it's not cold, but it's more damp. Can you also work with drying or making things wetter in the same way that you would work with heat and cold? That's an interesting question. As I said before, the only two classical teachings that come from Sa'am about the four-needle technique have to do with excess deficiency and hot and cold. There isn't a, a, a formula for damp and dry, but that doesn't mean that one couldn't experiment with that. And uh, one of the things that I've been working on recently is how to both identify and treat specific pathogen types by different uh, strategies with acupuncture that find a basis in classical Chinese texts, specifically uh, in the Neijing. So I think it is possible to do that. I haven't gotten to the point where I would use the four-needle technique for uh, damp or dryness or fire. You know, actually, you know, there are classically the six climatic influences. And so, uh, you know, we're talking about two of them, hot and cold, but they're the, or the other four that we need to be able to understand the nature of and come up with strategies for treating. Peter, how long have you been doing this? I think I started in 1973 or four. I don't remember exactly. Here we are in 2019 by the time people listen to this. I just love it that you've been doing this for so long. And 
you're so curious and inquiring and experimenting and looking and digging. It's, it, it's a real inspiration. Well, great. It's an infinite path. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody can really master everything there is about acupuncture in one lifetime. So Yeah, well, that's the good news, right? It is. It is. We'll never be bored. <laughs> Peter, again, thank you so much for your time today, and I look forward to our next conversation. Okay, Michael, thank you. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.